So look into some questions this evening. Someone's asking for clarification of the the analogy I gave of the orange, which was yesterday. They very well think I'm obsessed with oranges. Just went on talked about it for quite a while. But I was trying to explain dumbers without resorting to the Abhidharma, which is a huge colossal compendium. So if we say something like an orange, you probably think, yeah, I know what an orange is. Simple as a thing, is it? Orange. And so uh, definitely exists independently of anything else. It's purely itself. But then I'm saying, okay, well, what, what actually constitutes an orange? Colour? Yeah, oranges are always orange, but then t-shirts are orange. So the quality of orange is not purely to do with the fruit, is it? And the orangeness of the fruit doesn't give flavour, is it? But if it was blue, you wouldn't call it orange. So the orangeness is a factor, but not a unique factor or a singular factor. The orange is one aspect of something that gives rise to experience of that particular fruit. And I say, well, so anything else that you recognize with orange, they're generally rather round, aren't they? You don't get square oranges. So yeah, it's round and it's orange. But it could still be plastic or wax, couldn't it? So it's not just the roundness and the orangeness of it. You could have an orange football. So, oh, it's the... Um, it's the flavour that does it. Well, if you bite the rind, it's rather bitter. If you bite the flesh, it's rather sweet. So, which flavour? Can you have an orange that doesn't have rind? No, well, is the rind sweet? No, it's not. So, is the, what is the orange? Is it sweet or bitter? So, well, So that you have these factors, which none of them are really adequate to to cover the sense of an orange. But when they all come together, then we get the sense that that's an orange. And so what I'm saying is that uh, you know, if you take something like a or poignant, like a person, what is that? Is it the body? And is it, you say, well, yeah, it's the person's body. Well, do you see their liver? Is it their spleen? If you cut them up and take the blood out, would you say, oh, that's Susan? No, I don't think so. So, but clearly that person has blood, so, or that body has blood, so where, where's, the, where's the person? Where's, you know, so we, we know we, we attach to particular features and we create the person. So, so the person actually a series of perceptions and of course it's the underlying perception that that shape reminds me of someone 
So it wasn't the pre-existing condition of familiarity, the so we recognize this shape as a human being, just like you know, offer an orange to a three-year-old, three-month-old baby, doesn't know what oranges. But once you establish that, then you have the pre-existing condition of perception, and you measure things. So all this. I don't want to spend another 10 minutes talking about oranges. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm suggesting is that what we experience and think are real things are not real things. They're just mixtures of perceptions and impressions and memories and, and uh, what we're interested in. What, what feature that becomes. So, our subjective bias, our uh, previous understanding, and even state of mind affect what we're experiencing. So, if one, you know, if you sample that orange again, if you really haven't had one for a while, you think, oh, what a lovely thing that is, juicy, sweet. So, it would be extremely much more significant than if you were selling them. You had a hundred of them every day, you wouldn't even really notice them as fruit. They just could. That, that, that aspect would disappear, wouldn't it? So, everything that we experience is this mixture of, based upon other conditions. So, nothing really exists as a singular reality, but you can't say they don't exist either. There's this what's called dependent arising, you know, coming together of qualities, internal, external, objective, subjective, physical, psychological, and so forth, that generate our reality. And the point of that is to loosen the attachment to, to things, because they're not really things, they're just way we're seeing it right now. And also to begin to um, free the mind from this you know, holding all kinds of perceptions and realities that are purely mind-made. Therefore there can be that unbinding So, someone mentions this morning the reference to Tanha and Chanda. Tanha craving, Chanda motivation. So, these can be seen as different forms of desire. Desires is the energy that fires up, fires up the mind, fires up the heart. It's activated. And uh, so the activation of Tanha is to grasp and seize. The activation of Chanda is, um, can be of that nature, but it's also a skillful factor that's a desire to do. 
let's get on, a sense of purpose. So often this is really important in Dhamma practice to arouse your Dhamma chanda, your eagerness to generate skillful states and to dwell in them. The point being that Tanha is affected by ignorance. And Chanda is a support for, for awakening. How is it affected? How is Tanha affected by ignorance? Because with Tanha, the, the, the assumption is that we can have something. The answer is that, re- that, oh, I could have that, I want that, I need that, I could get that. So there's the Tanha, fires up. And that's exciting. I see that thing in the shop. I could buy that thing in the store. Oh, tanha, exciting. So this, this excitement is kind of addictive. It stirs us up. Heart feels kind of this fiery energy to be attractive. That's why people do a lot of shopping. They don't really need it. Because it's fun to have exciting time buying trinkets. But uh, of course, uh, you know, now, now you go and you bought it, whatever it was, you know, some fancy leather bag or Gucci ornaments or something, and you got it. And you got it, that fire of Tanha begins to fade out. Let's go, kind of, okay, put it in a drawer somewhere. <laughs> Get something else. <laughs> So with Tanha, you think you can you can own something, but actually you can't own anything. It will eventually leave you. And also, Tanha gives you the idea that if you got this, you'd be really happy. But you're not. You're happy for the moment you get it. Then when the fire goes out, dull now. Go and get something else, or go and have something to eat, or drink, or to something, so it's always that's what's called ignorance. It's a process that's eternally unsatisfied, inter- eternally unsatisfied, but very compulsive. So this is really crazy. But it's not a rational process. It's a, like addiction. You want it, get it, and you grab another one. So it doesn't make you happy. But every time it takes over, it takes over because it's accompanied by ignorance. Tanha itself doesn't exist alone. It dependently arises on ignorance, lack of clarity, lack of balance, lack of mindfulness, lack of awareness. So when that's present, Tanha easily takes over. Is blinded. That's it. Then, unfortunately, the result is that the, the, the after effect of, of uh, tanha, like any addiction, is you get that burst of craving, and it's great. You really want that, got it, and then go dull. So you get something like a hangover, you could say, a small hangover. So you grab another one. Uh, and because it's actually what it's doing, it's sending heart into an unfulfilling uh, experience. The heart gets depleted. 
because there's no fulfillment. So the heart gets depleted, weak, and, and, and needy. So then, gradually um, depletes the heart. In that depleted state, then again, Tanha comes in saying, this will pick you up, have one of these. So it's just this cycle that going on. So ignorance. And then the breaking of that is to just acknowledge this process. Oh, this is trapped. It's got to be way out. And this, this is this is doing me no good at all. So that you could say the shock or the recognition. Therefore, chanda is aroused. Do something. You know, let's get active. Do something to get out of this. Chanda, the motivation to escape from the grip. So, for, um, since this tanha quality is something that's inevitable when there's ignorance, and since you know, ignorance is a condition that affects us, Then the, this transformation occurs when we realize the way to, to deal with this is not to get rid of tanha, but to get rid of ignorance. If you get rid of ignorance, the tanha will change. So the trying to get rid of tanha is called vibhava tanha. Trying to become someone who doesn't have any tanha. There's only three kinds: there's karma tanha, sensuality uh, tanha, associated with becoming, status, um, um, advancement, success, uh, being seen in a positive way, you know, pride, and so forth. And there's vipartana, which is a sense of uh, negative influence of trying to destroy aspects of one's being. And this kind of thing spins around. And we're not trying to, well, we don't try to get rid of tanha. Maybe check, check the actions. You know, so we don't actually act upon it. What's happening here? We review it, review the whole process, the unsatisfactoriness of that. And then in doing so, in realizing, you know, you're not, the quality you need to remove is ignorance, attachment. Start with ignorance, be clear about what's going on. And this itself begins to lift the heart out of the grip. And this motivation is aroused. So the first lifting is, you could say, is faith. So there could be a way out of this. I don't want to be doing this. There's got to be a way out of that. So this is called Samwika, which is a feeling of dismay. You know, 
oh my goodness, what am I in? What everybody's in. This world is saturated in, my goodness, help. So then there could be a way out of this. And when we have this teaching, this is one of the principal teachings, there is a way out of this. And there are those who have done it, and those who present path and practices of that. So faith is aroused then you've got to do something. So chanda, motivation. What do you do? You deepen your investigation, you apply restraint, you keep rejecting these scenarios that tanha creates because you begin to sense when there's tanha, the mind is blurred, compulsive, fiery pleasant at all. Trunk. I don't like that. With increasing clarity you get more and more sensitive to this influence and you really don't like it. It it, uh, burns uh, and it makes you mad. (laughs) So you don't get So that increasing sense of uh, some wager dismay and then you need to lift from that. That takes motivation to keep applying oneself. But what occurs is through that this heart passion which was surging is now we still have that energy but instead of surging out into sense objects it turns back and fills the heart with a sense of purpose determination, then this tanha then is changed the energy of it is transformed into the energy of chanda, motivation right? and then with that motivation is there let's look at skillful means I know this takes some doing but first of all restraint and in particular you get that, that those voices in your mind saying well this everybody does this, I'll have another one just one, whoa, stop so you begin you get to learn where where the mind leaks, and so you get much more. You develop much more uh, heedfulness and careful attention, and then you place mindfulness there and knowledge there, and they help to, to both block that outflow. To block the outflow, then the ignorance is not getting fed by craving. It begins to diminish. With the diminishing of ignorance is the rising of clarity. Two sides of the same thing, isn't it? See, oh, I feel clear. Hey, I can do this. And the chanda comes more deeply rooted in faith and knowledge. So, this is what kind of keeps the path going, keeps the process of awakening going. Recognizing one's vulnerability to this influence and how damaging it is. You, you, you keep looking out for it. Praise. You, Praise is something fine. That's good. I don't want to. I don't want to grasp that. This is what I am. It's 
metta, pure appreciation, but we don't want to grasp status, praise, renown. That's what that happens, that's what happens, but the sense of feeding on it. Yeah. And of course we get tastes and sights which can be pleasing. Okay, maybe they're pleasing, but let it be that way. And we don't recognize where does the fever and the attachment come to that, hold on to that. So um, there's this quality called Nibhidha. Nibhidha means just you, know, you don't, want to, don't want to grab anything actually. So, so then that, that chanda is then, you know, as, as that kind of quality of dispassion and release comes in more gradually, then the, the chanda begins to be obeyed because we fulfill the purpose. So the heart cool and steadies because we, you know, the chanda is a desire we can actually. And you fulfill the desire by the liberation of the heart. A couple of breath meditation, I'll take them together. So, first of all, should one focus on when we're trying to focus on breathing? The feeling and the physical sensations. Um, so if I forget more of the physical sensations and those feelings, are a bit easier because uh, to get than this what you call this subtle energy body. So perhaps I should focus on those. Uh, and yeah, that's that's what you get to. Most important thing is to get some some um, anchor, some reference point. But if you're focusing on sensations, sensations associated with breathing, just notice they they flow, don't they? It's not sensations are a single thing. So that, that's a drip. Do, 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 do. So that that that's the energy. Sensations are flowing along. Kind of a permanent sensation, and you know, we use a phrase like subtle body, it sounds very refined, but actually, um, you know, every time you feel an emotion that jump in your body, that's that's what I'm talking about. So, if you feel a, you hear a crash and then you jump, that's that's your energy body did it. So nervous reactions. So it's not that subtle. And if we feel angry, you get this heating effect. That's that's the Kaya Sankara. If you feel craving, feverish, that's the Kaya Sankara. So they're called meritorious and demeritorious Kaya Sankaras. Demeritorious and Sankara, this is energy formations associated with anger, 
harshness that nature say our negative emotions will have this effect twisted bitter frightened closed shut down when you feel anything fearful that's happening to your energy body um, meritorious ones so they linger in those they, they perpetuate that's the nature of sankaras they get established and perpetuate and say stuck in it Similarly, fortunate ones associated when you feel a sense of uh, warm-heartedness, generally a kind of gentle flush comes into your skin as the face lights up. Gratitude face lights up. So that's taking you to a good place, isn't it? So that we consider a meritorious uh, kaya sankara. Now, if we're breathing in and out, then the very quality of the rhythm of the breathing, the fact that it flows, uh, that's, that's, that's energy flowing. And you can, although the sensations associated with breathing in and breathing out are that distinct, the energy of breathing in and breathing out is very different. Breathing out as an energy is a completely different experience than breathing in, very different from breathing out. So you notice that, we know I'm breathing in rather than breathing out. Swelling, say, often the skin, sense of body enlarging, that's the kaya sankara. Breathing out, subsiding, that's the kaya sankara. So you can even focus on that. Um, And this then naturally directly affects the emotion, the chitta sankara, the, the emotional body, the uh, emotional energies we have. That's why it's a useful um, focus. But, you know, by all means, if your mind is really spinning around and just getting something quite tangible, like a sensation, but I don't, you know, what sensations you experience you breathe out. Some maybe some tightening in the abdomen. You might feel a slight flush of, of air on your lips, breathing in through the nose. Breathing in's a bit easier. Breathing in you don't get the same flush on your lips, but you get a certain sense of perhaps air coming to the nostrils tightening up there, or expansion in the chest. So you might pick up these sensations. Um, as the mind steadies, recognizes it, what actually does the process of breathing, how does it affect the overall disposition of the body? Meditating on the breath, mind. Once the mind felt unified, breathing becomes very subtle. Felt like in the background, while awareness of the unified mind is a lot more dominant. Question: Do I stay and let go of the breathing as the mind unified, or do I keep watching the breathing in the background? 
Well, if it's a background and a foreground, then the mind isn't unified. There's two things. If there's so, and if there's uh, you know breathing separate from awareness, there's two things. The mind isn't unified. Where perhaps I think this is maybe this particular problem occurs when we refer to the process of uh, directly knowing as watching. So the term is used, uh, one directly knows one's breathing in, pajanati. doesn't say watching. Watching is more associated with the insight one reviews, one sees. But um, the process of samatha is not watching, it's touching. So directly know you directly, directly know energy by being touched by it. So the advantage of that is with feeling, you don't get this sense of a foreground and a background. It's just a swelling of feeling. And uh, because what feels um, in terms of the mind is chitta that feels that feeling slightly like a shivering or a brightening effect in jitta that's the heart feeling but also jitta is the seat of awareness so like I was saying the other day like consider a lake it's both reflective but it's also trembly and jitta is rather like that it's both reflective you know, could be very still it's always reflective sometimes it's very still sometimes it's choppy, lots of ripples but it always remains reflective so jitta remains reflective so it always has this aware reflective property and sometimes it's highly stimulated and sometimes it's less stimulated less feeling, more feeling intense feeling, subtle feeling but the two qualities are occurring in the same place. So when one feels the breath, one's awareness is conjoined with the feeling. You know, it's not watching. You know, all awareness is of feeling breathed. You know? <laughs> There's nobody watching it. There's the, the experience of feeling breathed. <laughs> the language isn't very easy. The experience is... is direct experience you know it because you're feeling it so there's no real distinction so then that means that say the energy of the breathing can die down as it will go quieter but you don't have to move your awareness because your awareness becomes more subtle as the movements of the lake rippling dies down you don't leave the lake. You know, the lake is more reflective, it's still there. So you don't have to go anywhere. Now the breathing can seem almost like it's almost gone altogether. Because the, the energy of the breathing has subsided into awareness. So that then as that process occurs, as often his heart feelings of rapture and ease and then 
letting that subside so it will gradually every return to awareness by itself if you follow the process that's the way it seems to me anyway yeah, it's quite a process this really. so we can get the ideas but sometimes you've really got to just take a few points check it out what's he talking about what's happening Try to feel it yourself. <laughs> That's the way it feels to me. <laughs> that could be wrong. Sometimes a person reaches an awareness that feels so alien. I feel a fear of going over the edge, so I pull back. Uh, well, I suppose I would. Is it safe to go further? What if it? If you feel the fear, it's not safe to go further because the fear is an alarm signal. Um, what is needed, I'd suggest, is to strengthen one's sati, one's mindfulness, and uh, inquiry, investigation, what's happening, what, what does awareness feel like. So you keep the sense of uh, connecting to and uh, inquiring into feeling it out so that it's kept intact what can happen for people if if the process is not properly stabilized this is why body meditation is really helpful because it does act as an anchor is that your awareness slides off and you get dissociated which means you sort of like you know where you are, you know, and that's not helpful. Now, does one forgive oneself? There are some regrets over the events in the day leading up to my father's death, thoughts, doubts whether I've made the right decisions in the emergency situation. If I dwell on it, there's critical self-blame. I've been applying gentle compassion. As the mind becomes calmer, exactly, gentle compassion. That means, you know, his difficult situation, it wasn't a dress rehearsal, didn't have any advice, so you do the best you can and naturally the whole process of seeing a, a parent or a family member pass away is extremely painful and one would like to stop it so naturally there's this feeling of wrongness and anguish and that can easily turn into I should have done it another way but you know who gets the lessons in how to do these things uh, as the mind becomes calmer and more stable I'm able to see larger perspective of the situation, more contentment and gratitude. Good. Contentment and gratitude. There's still some sadness but less guilt. I guess it's a gradual process to share your advice. I, I see that you're able to laugh when you spoke of your dad's death. How do you do that? Well, you know, you either laugh or you cry, don't you? <laughs> but 
this decision, something happens. Open all these things. And you recognize, you know, clearly the your experience of your father's passing was deeply sorrowful and confusing, but you feel contented. Are you contented that your father died in the emergency? I don't think so. I think it means you've arrived at a place of resolution that's as good as it could be. No point stressing, adding more anguish, peaceful. And then thank you, Father, for being around, you know, that sense of being like that, you know. So the emotion moves, changes, not because we weren't sorrowful and upset, but because jitta in its own way, it's a healing process. And if we're wise, if we don't shut off the, the, the grief and get traumatized by it, but jitta will, will do this thing where it comes out of that shock and separation into you know, a place where it begins to settle. It's just, you know, this is, this is the nature of all beings, and you know, we feel that, that re- resolution, we feel sort of a sense of contentment that, you know, we did what we could, and we'd, in fact we had someone who one felt grateful for. I think in my own case, uh, I think that my father's death was probably the most painful experience I've ever had heartbreaking um, second only to my mother's death but that was 45 years ago so things have moved on and so even now if I, if I think about my father's death I definitely feel this tingling of sadness It's, well, sadness, but tingling of emotion. I think when I was seven, seven years old, I became aware that my parents would die. And even then, such a horrifying thought that I decided I would not have any children, therefore I wouldn't have to put anybody else through the same misery that I was going to experience. <laughs> so that's, that's how deeply I felt it. So where did the laugh come from? I think it came from the sense of laughter isn't always a sense of happiness, sometimes bitter irony. And it was not so much my father passing, but the fact that this good man had uh, been advised to go to hospital because the doctor said you're in danger. And he was so fond of my mother wanted to be with her on her birthday. So because of that, the irony was that his birthday was four days later. He died on his birthday. Because he stayed around to be your mother. So there's that kind of terrible clash, you know, you realise these emotional qualities that people have. And that was a kind of beautiful thing to do. Uh, you know, but then he left her with a huge heap of grief. So it's the irony that kind of 
happy birthday. Mother never really recovered. Yeah, people do, but she was a much diminished person. And yeah, so you get a sense of compassion. Nothing I could do. I was in Thailand. Compassion, regret, dismay. All that, and spend years realizing the best thing you can do is live as good a life as you can, just out of respect for your father. So there's some sense of uplift that comes out of it, and. Uh, Gratitude. You've given birth and you didn't ask for anything back. Gives you life, doesn't ask for anything back. Brings you up, works so you get support, looks after you, works all day, works all the night, so he gives you support, doesn't ask for anything in return. Naturally, you get that sense of gratitude and uh, and blessing. Blessing, just blessing, expressing gratitude, and then trying to live a life that's worthy of the gift that one's parents give. So there's a lot in there, and as you probably recognise, it depends which bit of the orange you bite the bitter bit or the sweet bit and they're all mixed together aren't they? When helping others how do we decide how much to help and when to not help, when to stop helping? In other words it's not within our capacity or the person's not willing how to exercise compassion with wisdom or have equanimity over things we can't help with? That's you know, the question answers itself in a way. Um, but the process of jitta remains sympathetic. And naturally, we, we see a possibility of what we can do, but recognizing. We're limited what we can do. People are heirs to their karma. They have their own mind states, their own act, their own attitudes, their own conditioning. And you can, you can only shine a light. You can't get in there and change people. So this is why that sense of equanimity is the basis you know, of. of uh, how we you know, relate see there's the possibility the open you can put something they're not open you have to let it wait pass you know. sometimes it can be 10 years when something opens but the chitta doesn't work in terms of time you know you really trust your jitta, don't 
trying to become something or do more than you can do but stay tuned in the jitter will find its way, its suitable relationship and it takes time for that to go through the changes and establish proper balance how to handle feeling inferior when, when one is in the workplace Well, and um, what leads to the sense of unworthiness and how to cultivate the general sense of worthiness well it's stop measuring really you know it's, it's, it's so easy to compare oneself with others or what we see of others or compare oneself to an idea of what we would like to be or wish we could be this is this kind of action of the mind, mana conceit, comparing and conceiving I'm this, she's that, I'm this, he's that he's better, I'm small, I'm worse and um, you know, this agitation but (laughs) for a start you don't even know if the judgement is accurate it is because you know the nature of trying to say the nature of dumbness is it all depends you know nobody's better or worse just maybe she has more ability to formulate things quicker she's got a sharper intellect doesn't make her better she may be a terrible cook (laughs) or useless with dogs or a terrible child or ungrateful daughter so how do you, what do you measure you know and the problem with the workplace is we're often experiencing ourselves very much in terms of what one particular faculty efficiency you know more efficiency um, so then but efficiency is only one feature of a human being and it's not even the best so much more useful or more rewarding than efficiency is kindness integrity warmth clarity so you start to value those not what you what you think others are or what you think you are but whether you are trying to live with integrity and that's worth valuing the shift in values you see the world in general values efficiency wealth ability to produce things but What's, what's, you know, that just produces money. <laughs> it doesn't produce good people. You know, measure yourself in accordance with what's most useful. 
may think, well, you know, I don't have much loving kindness. She's got a lot more loving kindness than I've got. <laughs> I'm not as kind. Well, <laughs> doing the same thing. <laughs> Just whatever loving kindness, you've got a little, one little spurt, one little spark of loving kindness, fan it. <laughs> Rather than go, oh, well, not as good as that, you, then you're not fanning it, are you? You're damping it down. A little tiny little flicker of goodwill, then we get you panicked. <laughs> great, 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 wonderful, you know. Rather, it's not it's not as good as hers, which is a floodlight. But then you're not fanning it, you're looking somewhere else. You have to feed, feed and dwell upon and linger in. And all these negative self-images one has put of grasping at ideas and you know, things like efficiency or perceptions, grasping of these, and then this negative self-image comes up. So you put it aside. And be with, you know, get out of the workplace and be with people, good people, who appreciate kindness, gentleness, sincerity, integrity, and just do your learning there. Do your learning there. person has painful body sitting, standing, walking it's been ongoing for years hard to meditate um, well what is meditation? does it mean focusing on the feelings in your body? it sounds like a bad idea they're painful. I mean, it may not be easy to ignore them, but perhaps it's more useful to um, cultivate loving kindness and uh, you find some particular position that's manageable, reclining or sitting in a chair or moving around a bit, and uh, generate what you can through, through other means than focusing on the body. So that's enough for this evening. Thank you for your questions.